like to read from the opening paragraph of a book called Love's Executioner by a psychiatrist named Erwin Yalom. Wrote, I do not like to work with patients who are in love. Perhaps it is because of envy. I too crave enchantment. Perhaps it is because love and psychotherapy are fundamentally incompatible. The good therapist fights darkness and seeks illumination, while romantic love is sustained by mystery and crumbles upon inspection. I hate to be love's executioner. So when I read that, the question came to mind, is there a kind of love that doesn't crumble upon inspection, that is actually compatible with and enhances illumination, rather than one that's, that thrives in darkness? Is there a difference between the enchantment of falling in love and the quality of our beings when we're standing and living in love? Is there a difference between these two? In our lives, we may have met people who embody this quality of standing in love, of living in love. And for me, two people stand out whose presence in this regard is so inspiring. One of them, someone we've talked about over the years quite a lot, our teacher who died last fall, Deepama, woman in Calcutta, And the other person who embodies this so much for me is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And they share some very profound qualities. In both of these people, there's a very profound sense of understanding suffering. It's like their beings are rooted in that understanding and the understanding of emptiness, emptiness of self. And the strong, palpable force of love. In being with both of them at different times, there's the feeling, or other people like that, you know, who you may have met in your lives, the feeling very often was that for that moment, you are the most important person in the world to them. It's a wonderful feeling to be the recipient of. 
And what is this? What is this such special quality? It's interesting having an experience of it, even through other people being the recipient, because it becomes an inspiration to us for what is possible, for what is possible for us to develop in our hearts and in our minds. This quality, which Deepaman, the Dalai Lama, and many, many others, this quality which they embodied so powerfully is precisely the quality of metta, the Pali word for loving-kindness or loving-care. And this quality of metta is a great generosity of the heart. And it's a simple wish, a simple and powerful wish for others to be happy. May you be happy. In this feeling of metta, in this feeling of loving-kindness, there's nothing which is seeking any self-benefit. There's no seeking anything out. And so there's no expectation in this feeling of love for anything back. It's not given in that way, which is what makes it such a strong movement of generosity of the heart. It's the simple wish, may you be happy. The Buddha, in the course of his many years of teachings, gave different discourses on the development of this quality. He placed a very great value on the power of metta for the purification of one's being. I just wanted to read one of the shortest, the shortest suttas or discourses. So the words of the Buddha on the development, on the practice of loving-kindness. This is, this is the Buddha instructing people in a way of practicing it. May all beings be happy, whatever their nature, whether weak or strong, omitting none, whether tall or large, average or short, fine or coarse, those which can be seen and those which cannot, those that are near and those that are far, those already born and those that are to be born. May all beings be happy. Let none deceive another nor despise anyone on any grounds, nor with anger or thoughts of hate let beings ever wish one another harm. Just as a mother will give her life to protect her one and only child, just so toward all beings should one boundlessly open one's mind. 
with loving kindness towards the whole world, should one boundlessly open one's mind. Above, below, and all around, free from narrow, narrowness, ill will, and hate. The simple wish, may all beings be happy. The great purity in this feeling is that it's never associated with anything harmful, either for oneself or others. So many of the actions which we do are mixed or can get mixed. But metta has this purity because there's nothing harmful contained in it. The simple wish, may you be happy. And the you in this is very big. The you is everyone. The you is all beings. One of my favorite stories expressing this quality of metta is of the Zen hermit monk and poet Ryokan, who lived in the 18th century. He just wandered around the mountains in the hills of Japan, meditating and playing with the children and basically embodying this great love. One of the stories about him was that on a sunny day, he would pick the lice out of his robes and place them on a rock to sun themselves. And at the end of the day, he would put them back in his robes. (laughs) I thought, that's loving kindness. <laughs> the characteristic quality of this feeling, how it affects the mind and the heart, is that it's a great softening. It makes the heart and mind very smooth and very pliable rather than hard and rigid. It fills us with feelings of benevolence and goodwill. It's the feeling which is seeking the welfare of other beings. When we look at how this quality of metta functions, how it creates this softness and pliability. And we can begin to see the relationship of the development of metta with the growth of wisdom. Metta is really the ground of wisdom. Because when this feeling of loving kindness or loving care is strong, what happens? we become increasingly patient. Our minds become patient. Our minds become what 
one Zen master called the Long Enduring Mind. From this patience, we're able to see more clearly, to discriminate more clearly between what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Our minds are not so reactive, they're not so automatic. When they're soft and pliable, it brings patience. Patience brings non-reactivity. Non-reactivity brings discriminating wisdom. From this discriminating wisdom, we are actually able to make some wise choices in our lives. We see, yes, this way leads to suffering, this way leads to happiness. And so we have the opportunity to make the choices which will again bring us to more happiness and more peace. And the foundation of that whole sequence is the feeling of love. The beauty of the Buddhist teachings, and really what brings us all together here, is the understanding that these states of loving-kindness, of patience, of wisdom, that all of these states are not something simply to admire in someone else, but that they're to be cultivated in ourselves, in our own lives. Every fall, uh, a few of us begin again a rather long-term project of studying Pali. And it seems we basically go back at the beginning each fall. And <laughs> but even though it's this very tentative and beginning stage, although Andy has started calling us the advanced class, <laughs> There sometimes just there can be an understanding of what particular words mean. They really illuminate so much about what we're doing. One of the words in Pali which was like that is the word which is translated as meditation. The word in Pali for meditation is bhavana. And when we look at that word in Pali, it has a very interesting meaning. And grammatically, it's, it's a causative form of the word to become, which means that meditation or bhavana causes something to become, causes something to develop. So that's what you're doing here. It's not just sitting down and hoping the mind lands on the breath or hoping a little loving-kindness develops somehow you know, out of sitting here for three months. That the practice, the meaning of the word to meditate means to cause to be developed. 
When we understand that that's what this process is about, it's tremendously empowering. Because we see, we understand that different states, whether it's mindfulness or concentration or loving-kindness, can be caused to be developed. That's what, the medi- that's what the practice of meditation is about. In this regard, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese poet and meditation master and wonderful being, he, he expressed it very well. He said, practicing Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. Happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. (laughs) And this is really the, the teaching of the Buddha. You know, he's saying, if we understand our minds, if we understand how it's all working and what leads to what, happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. Please cause it to be developed. It's easy to recognize, I think, the beauty and the power of loving-kindness, the benevolent quality of metta. But I think for all of us, there are quite a few times in our lives when we find this quality lacking, when it's not present, when our hearts are not soft and our minds are not spacious. And so it's helpful to understand how this happens. What is it that is closing us off from this feeling of love? The Buddha spoke of two mental qualities, very strong forces in the mind, forces that are powerfully conditioned throughout this life and, as he taught, over many countless lifetimes. They're two powerful enemies of metta, of loving-kindness. So we need to understand them because they're strongly conditioned in our minds. Through understanding them and how they work, we can begin to practice not getting caught up in them so much. The first of these enemies of metta or the qualities which can destroy loving-kindness. It's called the near enemy because it's a mind state which looks like metta and can act like metta, masquerades as metta, but is not metta. And this is the quality of desire. We often confuse desire and love. Loving kindness 
is a gift of the heart. It's a movement of generosity. It's a feeling within us of wishing happiness for another being. And so it's a movement outwards as a gift. The nature of desire or craving is that it's a wanting. And so the very energies of these two qualities, when we look carefully, when we we really examine in our own experience, we see how different they are. But when desire comes masquerading as love, it gets very confusing because desire has the power to deceive us, to make us think when we're full of desire for a being that we're actually full of love. Why do we confuse them? We confuse them because in both states, in both loving-kindness and desire, there is a movement towards a person, towards a being, towards an object. And so in both, we find ourselves going towards. And also, in both desire and loving-kindness, there can be great delight and great happiness. But with metta, we go towards a person or a being simply wishing them happiness. With desire, we go towards a person or a being wanting something back. Wanting something for ourselves in that movement, even if it is just a good feeling. Still, it's the movement of wanting rather than the movement of giving. What happens is that we can get so caught in the delight and the happiness, the excitement, which is there and it's, it's part of our experience and we all know it. You know, in, in this great delight of desire, we can get caught by it and not see the disadvantages of it. both in our practice and in our lives, outside, in our relationships, I think it becomes tremendously insightful to begin disentangling these two forces, just so that we can begin to see what are the movements of metta, what are the movements of desire. Where is there just a giving of a benevolent wish, and where is there a movement of going towards with a wanting something back? Often these two come mixed. You know, in one relationship, 
there's some metta and there's some desire. And it's that intermixing which can be so confusing. Just a very little example of this, but which I think highlights the difference. Years ago, when I was still practicing in India, living in India for any period of time, a reality that one must confront, one comes up against again and again and again, is the fact of countless people begging. You know, it's just, it's a pervasive reality. And no matter how poor one is, or how little one has, coming from the West, it's infinitely more than what these people have. One day I was standing at the, in the bazaar buying some oranges, and this little beggar boy comes up, and he was obviously looking very hungry, and holding out his hand. And I just had this feeling of metta, of, of care. I took an orange, and I just put it in his hand, and he walked away. And in that moment of his walking away, I saw that there was something else mixed in my mind, because unconsciously, I was waiting for something back, a smile, a, a nod, a thank you, or something. And it became so clear the difference between a pure act of giving which doesn't want anything back, and even the subtle sense of expectation. It's very helpful in our lives to begin to distinguish, to begin to sort out these different mind states that are within us and that often come mixed together, that of metta and that of desire. Because each one has very significant consequences. We can begin to see what feelings in our lives come from each of these states? Where does fear come from? Where does insecurity come from? Where does possessiveness come from? Does it come from metta or does it come from desire? Which feeling in us is the basis for all the projections that we create with other people. And then all the disappointments which inevitably follow upon our projections. Do these come from the feeling of metta or from the feeling of desire? So we have to, we have to look. Where do feelings of a genuine peace come from? a genuine contentment? Does it come from loving-kindness or does it come from desire? All of this is to be investigated in our own experience because that's the only way it becomes alive. It's not a question of hearing something and even 
either agreeing or disagreeing, but even if thinking, oh yeah, this sounds right, it's not enough. Because then we really don't get it. It has to be that we see it in our own minds, in our own experience. How are these forces working? Whether we are practicing love or practicing desire is really up to us. And that, I think, is a tremendous, tremendously freeing understanding. But it doesn't depend on anything. It doesn't depend on anybody or any kind of external circumstances. It's totally up to us what we choose to practice and develop and cultivate. It's part of the freedom which comes from understanding the mind, from understanding that there are different forces and different qualities, and we have options. This doesn't mean that all of a sudden we see this difference between love and desire, and all the desires fall away, and that all that's left is this great, radiant, pure love that shines forth forever and ever. I don't think it happens like that. Although it's said that at the third stage of enlightenment, you know, anagamihood, that desire is completely uprooted. We're waiting to see. But even before that time, we can practice wise choices in our lives if we see, if we really see how these are arising in the mind and we practice. The more we practice them, the more naturally the choices start to happen. Just a, a touch of Abhidhamma here. Abhidhamma is the Buddhist psychology there's one, there's one interesting distinction made in types of consciousness. One type is called prompted and the other type is called unprompted. Prompted consciousness means kind of consciousness that we have to urge along. You know? And so that's when we're in the process of beginning to cultivate, for example, loving-kindness. We have to keep reminding ourselves, oh yeah, let's, let's go down this road. You know, of love rather than this road of desire. And so it's prompted again and again. At a certain point of development, it becomes what is called unprompted, which means that the consciousness of loving-kindness just starts happening by itself because it has been well-practiced. That becomes nice. We actually start living more and more in this feeling. So desire is the near enemy of metta. We need to see, we need to discriminate clearly between the two. The far enemy of metta 
is a quality which is its exact opposite. And this is the feeling of ill will, or anger, or hatred. And we know from watching these forces in the mind that they can destroy love. When we're feeling angry, or we're feeling hatred, or we're feeling ill will, in those moments, there is no loving feeling going on. Ill will has this effect, when we watch and observe it, we see it has this effect of really hardening the heart. It's like it contracts and closes off. It's a contraction inward. There are two forms or two kinds of ill will. One kind is very aggressive, and it's an ill will that strikes out at other people or situations. It's very rough, comes out in harsh language. What is it that makes us so angry? You know, it's always helpful to really analyze a situation in order to understand its causes. What causes such aggressive anger or ill will to come up in the mind? One cause is when we think or reflect or remember about some harm that somebody has done to us or to somebody we love. And so when we think of this, it makes us very angry. It can be in the past, it can be in the present, it can be in the imagined future. You know, we, can, we can imagine some fantasy of somebody doing something to harm us, and we get angry, even though it hasn't even happened yet. We also get angry when people do nice things to those that we don't like. You know, we don't like that. And so we get annoyed or judgmental or filled with ill will. And we can get angry in very inappropriate or impersonal situations. One is wanting a sunny day, and it rains. You know, and to the degree that the expectation was strong, to that degree there'll be aversion when it doesn't happen. This inappropriate anger can come fr quite frequently also when we project our own conditioning on other people. It's like we're laying our trip on others, not seeing that, and we get angry about it. Just a couple of an example of this. It came up a lot in my interviews with Sayadaw. He was a great object for projection, you know, of just all the different things in my mind. 
And for a long time, I took every suggestion he gave me, or every question that he asked, I took as a judgment. You know, he'd say, walk slower. I'm walking too fast. <laughs> I'm bad. The list goes on and on. Just projecting this quality of self-judgment, of judging in myself, projecting this quality onto him, and then getting angry, getting annoyed. Really what was happening was that he was like a mirror, just reflecting back my own mind state. And so if I was judging myself, what I would see in him was a judgment. Finally, after months and months and months of suffering through all of this, I began to catch on and saw that what he was saying wasn't judgments. And as I saw that, he got lighter, miraculously. <laughs> One time I was in Burma, I was practicing. After having struggled for a long time here, being with pain and working with the pain and feeling you know, all these projected judgments, I was practicing in Burma and my practice had gotten to a place where my mind was quite poised and even and balanced. And I had been sitting and I went and report. I was reporting all this pain. And he asked me in this rather gruff voice, you know, well, did you move? And I just looked at him and I was feeling very open and he said, and he smiled. I said, of course I moved. <laughs> and he just smiled. And, and it was such a clear lesson to me of just how much I had been projecting and then getting annoyed or angry or the whole range. And so it's just to see that a lot of our anger or ill will has nothing to do with the situation outside or the person outside, often. It can often be just a reflection of what's going on in our own minds. The second kind of aversion or ill will, beside the anger, is called a weak or contracting form. And that is ill will or anger that is turned back on oneself. And this takes the form of fear, which is a kind of aversion. It takes the form of sorrow, which is a kind of aversion. It takes the form of grief, which is a kind of aversion. When these get out of balance, just as anger, aggressive anger, can be great harm to others, this contracted form this, this form of ill will that's turned back on oneself can be of tremendous harm to oneself. And we know that. You know, when the mind gets out of balance with overwhelming sorrow or overwhelming grief or fear, there's no equilibrium, there's no balance there. There's a real mental imbalance. And just as we can confuse love with desire and get those two mixed up, 
we can also get love and compassion mixed up with sorrow. Now, where we think we're feeling love and compassion, but really we're feeling sorrow. And these are different, because in sorrow there's aversion, and in love and compassion there's no aversion. So it takes a lot of subtlety to begin to sort out this range of emotion. Because without a keen awareness, it all gets jumbled together and we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's wholesome, we don't know what's unwholesome. We don't know which is leading to happiness, which is leading to suffering. And so the power of what we're doing is to begin to get some clarity about all of these different forces in the mind. The stronger this far enemy of love is, this far enemy of ill will, of aversion, of hatred, of anger, the stronger that is in our lives and in our minds, the less love we have the less happiness we have. One of the, one of the quirks of our minds, and it's something that is of continual amazement to me, are the ways in which we justify our anger to ourselves, a kind of righteous anger. Well, I should be angry because this, 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 and this is happening. Who's suffering? When we're filled with anger or hatred, it's like saying, well, I have a right to suffer. Okay, <laughs> nobody's going to take it away from us if we don't want to give it up. But it's really to see that anger as a response is not helpful, it's not appropriate. It doesn't mean that we ignore the situation, it doesn't mean that we don't take action, it doesn't mean that we don't deal with whatever's going on but it's to learn how to do it in ways that actually free us, rather than ways that simply cause us more suffering. This is also very delicate, because people sometimes suppress their anger in trying to feel metta. Somebody, somebody gave a very good image for that little move, they said it's like pouring molasses into a cesspool. <laughs> That's a pretense of metta. It's not metta. Now, it's not being filled with rage and filled with anger. Oh, be happy, be happy. <laughs> That's not it. But if we see what's going on, we can learn to work with the anger or the ill will and some of the ways that have been suggested, to open our minds, to open our hearts, and then to see, yeah, there's another possibility here. 
What's so important in all of this is to see that all of these qualities are impersonal factors of mind. They don't belong to anybody. Not the love, and not the compassion, and not the anger, and not the desire. They're, they're qualities, though, they're factors of mind which arise and function in their own particular ways. When we see this, then we can learn to be in that place of not condemning anything that's arising, and not taking pride. Oh, I am so loving. Because the love doesn't belong to anyone. It's a quality which manifests in a particular way. Anger is a quality which manifests in a particular way. It's not to be condemned. We don't condemn ourselves or judge ourselves. We just understand. Through practice, and this is, this is really what we're all doing here for these three months, we begin to see for ourselves, not through what somebody says and not through reading, we begin to see through our own experience of watching our minds what conditions, what states lead to suffering and what states, what conditions lead to happiness. We see it from watching and watching and observing and feeling what's going on over and over and over again. We can learn how to let go or abandon or refrain from those things which cause suffering. We can make some choices. We can cultivate those things which lead to happiness. Just in the beginning of September, we had some teacher meetings in England. I was also teaching a short retreat there. And just when I was there, one of the hostages from, who was being held in Lebanon Somebody from Northern Ireland, Brian Keenan, was released after four and a half years of being held as a hostage. And there's a lot, a lot of interviews with him and a lot in the newspapers. It was quite amazing because he described briefly some of the very horrendous conditions under which they were held and beaten and I mean, there was a lot of brutality. This is what he said. Jed, it was just a couple of days after his release. He said, I feel no desire for vengeance. I feel no desire for retribution. I don't see those as positive. I don't see them as meaningful. I find those things self-maiming, and I do not intend maiming myself. It's very powerful coming from somebody just out of a situation like that. You know, we can sit here and talk about metta and loving-kindness, and part of the mind 
can say, well, it's fine here and we can wish all beings be happy, but what about in real life? It's the same thing in real life. And people who have these resources in themselves, which are really a basic spiritual resource, are able to deal with the most intense situations from this place of metta, of loving-kindness, of seeing the harm of hatred, seeing the harm of anger. We've looked at the quality of metta, just this generosity and the softness of the heart. It's, it's a forgiveness, a willingness to forgive. It's a pliability of a mind and a patience. We've looked at the enemies of metta, which are desire and anger or ill will. The question, the practical question for us, is how can we cultivate, how can we strengthen this feeling of love in ourselves so that it becomes alive in us and becomes increasingly unprompted. We begin living more and more with this feeling. There are a few very simple ways to strengthen and cultivate this quality in us. The first of them is so obvious that most of the time we completely miss it. The proximate cause for the arising of metta, the condition for the arising of metta, is focusing on the beautiful and good qualities in people. One of the great insights that comes from meditation practice, we see in ourselves and by extrapolation understand it true of all beings, that we're all a package of qualities. There are skillful ones and there are unskillful ones in all of us. There are noble qualities and not so noble qualities. When we understand that everybody, every being is a package like this, and we understand that it's the focusing on the good qualities that's the condition for metta to arise, we can practice that, we can make the effort. Let me seek out, let me really see what is good in people. This does not mean that we don't see the other part. It doesn't mean that we're blinding ourselves or we're pretending that the other part is not there. We can see very clearly the totality of a person and you choose to focus on those qualities which are good, on those qualities which are beautiful. What happens very naturally then, when we're focusing on these good qualities, is that we begin to have loving feelings towards that person. 
It's so clear. If we focus as our minds are so often want to do, if we keep busy searching out what's wrong with people, you know, and their faults and their flaws, and what happens? That conditions a lot of judgment, conditions a lot of ill will, a lot of irritation, a lot of annoyance. And so we can change, we can change our approach, our relationship with people. Something quite remarkable starts to happen. As we start relating to the good qualities in people, they start relating to us in a much more loving way, much more generous way. Sometimes I think the Buddha was, it's almost like he was teaching kindergarten. (laughs) You know, we're all in, it's like, be nice to people. (laughs) You know, be kind, be loving, and you'll be happy. (laughs) It's so simple. But our conditioning, our habits are so strong, we have to be very watchful of what we're doing and begin to make some wise choices to see, yeah, this way doesn't lead to happiness. This way does. And so we practice it, we cultivate it until it becomes our habit. This is the first way to strengthen the feeling of loving-kindness. As a corollary to this, and something that is hugely important during these three months is to develop this loving-kindness in just this way for ourselves. Somebody very aptly expressed the nature of insight when they said, self-knowledge is always bad news. You know, we sit and we open up (laughs) and we just see, we see everything we've spent our lives trying not to see. So given this, given that this is quite a common occurrence, it's essential that we hold all of this, all of this seeing, that we hold it all in the embrace of loving-kindness for ourselves. And so some reflection on our own good qualities is tremendously helpful, so we stay connected with the basic purity. I forget who mentioned this image, but the image just stuck in my mind. It was was a lovely image of placing one's head in the lap of the Buddha. You know, just be happy. To develop that kind of metta for oneself is tremendously important as we undertake this journey. Because we need to open and to see a lot of things. This feeling of love is what's going to give us the strength to do it. 
Love also comes from feelings of gratitude. And so when we reflect on the many things that many people have done for us in our lives, I think the Buddha spoke of how rare is the quality of gratitude in people. And especially in meditation, I've, I've noticed that our hearts, our hearts really open to this feeling of gratitude. We start remembering, things start coming up of what people have done, of how they've helped us. Out of this gratitude comes a great feeling of metta, of loving-kindness. A third way of arousing love in some way has to do with the application of insight or wisdom. And I've noticed this particularly in times when ill will is arising in a situation. You know, I'm thinking of somebody or being with somebody and there's some ill will or anger arising, really bringing the wisdom of understanding this ill will is suffering for myself, it's unwholesome. Can I change channels? If there's enough awareness to actually see, to explore, to understand, yeah, this, this is an unwholesome channel, and it's just leading to more suffering, we actually have the ability to just you know, with the old remote control, instead of going on this channel, how about the channel of metta? And it's quite interesting how we have that power, if we're aware, if we can bring awareness, of dropping out of our heads and all the thoughts of the anger, okay, may I be happy, may you be happy, and it changes everything. We also develop metta through specific meditation practices, through the development of the loving-kindness bhavana, the causing of love to be developed. We do it in a general way, as part of the vipassana. It can be done in a very specific way, as a concentration practice. It's helpful to keep this quality in mind, this generosity of the heart towards oneself, towards others. The the Buddha talked of it as being one of the sublime abodes, because it is such a beautiful state of mind, a beautiful state of heart. We can practice it, we can cultivate it. I'd like to close with a meta poem. It's one of my favorites. It's called it's written by a, a New England poet, uh, Galway Canal, who is a wonderful poet. And the poem is Saint Francis in the Sow. The bud stands for all things, 
even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As Saint Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and tell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. That's the power of metta, reteaching a thing its loveliness, reteaching ourselves, reteaching all other beings, until we all flower from within of self-blessings. Let's sit for just a few minutes. I'd be doing some meta as we said. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.